Hello and welcome to Ditching Hourly. I'm Jonathan Stark. Today I am joined by Justin Jackson. Justin, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So I know you from Mega Maker first, but you're also my very favorite podcast host. You're the co-founder of Transistor FM. Yes. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Thanks. And we we appreciate having you on the on the platform. So can you tell folks, I mean, you've been, I feel like you're an all around internet guy. Probably everyone has heard of you before, but could you give folks a little bit of a background just for context for the conversation we're going to have today? Sure. Yeah. I uh, co-founded Transistor.fm in 2018 with my friend, John Buda. We do podcast hosting and analytics. Before that, I mostly worked for SaaS companies uh, doing product management and product marketing. But I've also been a freelancer and done consulting. So I think I left full-time work in 2014 and then did that for, no, yeah, is that right? 2016, sorry. And then did it for two years before founding Transistor. Cool. And the, I think the focus for today's call kind of starts from a tweet that you shared about motivating unmotiva unmotivated users to use the platform or the SaaS or the app or whatever it is. And, mm -hmm. and I felt like the question I'm going to, I looked for it before and I couldn't find it, but it, in my mind to paraphrase it, it was like, it was kind of like, correct me if I'm wrong, it was something like, um, there's nothing you can do to the product to make unmotivated users motivated to use it. And mm -hmm. my reaction to it and the way I remember, the reason I remember it like that is because I was like, well, why does it have to be in the product that you motivate? You. It felt like a felt like a false premise to me. Mm. So yeah. can you yeah can you can you actually correct me and, and tell me if you remember what you did tweet and what you meant? Sure. Yeah. So and it was it was based on I think I was listening to a podcast and they were talking specifically about onboarding and how um, it's possible to make changes in the onboarding that will in turn increase usage or um, you know, uh, fundamentally affect the the uh, activation and retention of customers. And I think the the larger point I'm making is that better onboarding, user experience, activation is not going to solve anything if there's an underlying motivation problem. And I even more broadly, I, I I have a working thesis that could be wrong, but the working thesis is that largely individual entrepreneurs can't do much to um, motivate customers. They have to already be in motion. And I think we can influence it, but our, our influence, I think, is uh, we have less influence than we think. But there are uh, multiple variables in a person's life um, that influence desire for a product or service. And the idea that especially independents would have a uh, any sort of significant influence over what is the underlying motivation uh, for a particular customer, what's pushing them or pulling them to towards a product um, or towards a solution. I just don't. I don't think we have as much influence there as we think. And so that that's kind of the broad. I think that's the. Those are the broad strokes. Mm, okay. So I think uh, I think we agree that well. I guess my angle on it is that um, better onboarding isn't going to hurt anything. It's a question of, of is it worth the inv time investment or the money investment, right? Yeah. And also, I mean, I, I, I'm also not saying that you shouldn't try to onboard folks better. But I, I, and I mean, a lot of this is based on my experience with different SaaS companies. Uh, so I have podcast hosting right now. Before that, project management with Sprintly. Before that, uh, email newsletters with Mailout Interactive, and you can certainly uh, affect short-term results by doing all sorts of things, right? You can convince people to sign up for something um, uh, using all sorts of tricks, onboarding tricks, UX tricks, whatever. But in in terms of like long-term retention, in terms of somebody using a product and uh, getting enjoyment out of it or getting utility out of it and then sticking around for a long time, um, there has to be motivation that's coming from within the person themselves mm -hmm. uh, in the same way that 
you know, if uh, I was a marriage counselor and, you know, people came to me and wanted to fix their marriage, but one person didn't want to fix the marriage. Um, <laughs> I can't do a lot to, to, I can give them all the tricks and the, the techniques and everything, but ultimately the, the motivation for fixing something or using a product consistently has to come from the customer. And uh, there are just so many variables that affect customer motivation that I, I, I think it's really difficult for us to, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, I think people imagine that they are Steve Jobs and that they can like uh, magically influence people to and entice people to use things. And um, again, certainly at a certain scale, you could probably have more influence than not, but for most independents, I think we have very little influence and it's better for us to focus on people who are already in motion, uh, where there is already demonstrated demand than trying to fabricate that demand ourselves. Mm. That's hard to argue. And I'm, and I'm not interested in arguing, honestly, it's mm -hmm. uh, because the, um, you know, you've got a lot of practical experience with SaaS. I have very little. Um, but mm -hmm. I do have a lot of practical experience with with info products and training and coaching and other sort of indie online bootstrap stuff and yeah. and including subscription memberships that do have churn. It's just there's just no software behind it. It's a membership community. So yeah. so that and again, and I'll also pile on and agree that things that someone who has a billion dollar marketing budget can get away with not on the table. I mean, it's like copying Apple or Samsung or Volkswagen would be a giant waste of time and money. It wouldn't do anything probably. Yes. And I, I also think it ignores the, the cumulative nature of markets. So the, the reason we have a smartphone category um, is based on a bunch of other layers that came before that. And so it wasn't like when Steve Jobs introduced the iPhone, it was like this magical new category that no one had ever heard of before. We had existing categories of uh, pocket MP3 players and existing smartphones. And then before that, cell phones and before cell phones, uh, landlines. And, you know, it, it, yeah. it goes down the line. There's already always a cumulative nature to these things. He literally did that in the announcement where he said, it's an MP3 player. It's a phone. Yes. It's a web browser. And he said it over and over and over. Yes. And mm -hmm. I, I think uh, this, this people miss this. They, there's a lot of independents, both service providers and product providers, I think, who, can who feel like they can invent or innovate brand new categories. And they often invoke Steve Jobs as the example <laughs> of somebody who invents categories. But if you watch what he does in those presentations, he is deliberately linking this new thing to something that's come before to create space in the customer's mind for it because they already know what it's like to be motivated to have all their music in their pocket. They know that. They already know what it's like to forget their camera when they go on a trip and wish they had it with them. <laughs> they already know uh, that desire to check their email when they're, you know, uh, away from their computer. Mm -hmm. So these were all existing demonstrated demands that he taps into with the new product and I guess the new category, uh, which is touchscreen smartphones. Yeah. he And just to pile on there, I, I think it was in the Isaacson biography. I don't remember which success it was after, but it might've been after he brought Apple back from the brink, which I mm -hmm. think was the iPod phase. And someone asked him, what are you going to do next? And he said, wait for the next big thing. Mm hmm. I, I didn't I didn't know about that anecdote, but that to me is like that's kind of really it, especially this is kind of the advantage of being a small player is that we can jump on the, the coattails of something bigger that's happening in the world. And whether that bigger thing was caused by a combination of um, geopolitical events, um, you know, uh, other kind of. Uh, zeitgeist pop culture events like we it doesn't really matter um well like covid for zoom yeah yeah like the, the the pandemic was good for podcasting at least initially um april and may of the initial lockdown were 
two of our highest months at at Transistor. We we couldn't. That was we had nothing to do with that. <laughs> You know, like, uh, and if I was if I was being judged, you know, uh, by my KPIs, and the board was looking at me, going, "Well, look at your April May. We should reward you for this. You're brilliant, Justin." Uh, <laughs> it actually had nothing to do with me. Um, it's just outside events. Yeah. So, so let's bring it a little bit into specifics. So, and back to when you were talking about what independent operators or sort of bootstrappers or solo operators can do, that other than be in the right place at the right time. I mean, that just seems like uh, a lot of false starts and opportunism. And it's like, well, wait a second, what if I actually care about something and want to make a difference with that thing? And maybe it's a question of, you know, I talk about it on the business of authority all the time. It's not about building a business that I'm then going to sell in three years, you know, to Google mm -hmm. or somebody. It's about being on a mission and making enough money to be able to come back and do it again tomorrow. Yeah, and that's fine. You know, and yeah. in, in a situation like that, if you're playing a real long game and you've got your, your 10, 20 years and you're not worried about, I don't think you're as worried about competition because there's no such thing. If you're on a mission and someone else wants to do it too, then that's good. That's what you want. The more competition, the better if you're truly on a mission. Yeah. But the, but the thing that you, the thing that you're getting at, you didn't actually say it, but like the, the, the classic, oh, I'm going to scratch my own itch and assume that everybody else has the same one. That yeah. to me is a recipe for disaster, but they're not the same thing. Yeah. And I actually, I'm also uh, on record. I have, I have a skepticism about, I have a skepticism about a lot of cliches mm -hmm. uh, and the, the riches are in the niches uh, is one of them. Um, partly because I'm Canadian, it's spelled niches, <laughs> uh, but, or it's pronounced niches. Right. But um, the, the idea that the, the world is so big and that the internet is so big and, and therefore anything you can imagine auto automatically has a market to me is ridiculous and has been proven time and time again by, by uh, thousands, if not millions of product launches where somebody released something that certainly should have a niche with, you know, the internet's huge and the world population is huge. How come there can't be enough customers to financially support this? And it's because uh, most actual, like most products and services out there just kind of fall in line with existing waves. And existing the, the waves? Waves of demand. So, um, or existing categories might be another, a better way to put it. Like what's an example, just to make make it make sense? Sure. So, I gotta. Ha I have to think of something that that didn't work. That's um, oh, that's hard because you don't know. Well, did yeah. you ever launch something that failed? Oh uh, yeah, 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 for sure. Um, and and yeah. So the the deconstructing a failed launch is interesting because it it, it reveals like all the things that have to be in place. So I tried to launch. Um, a basically what amounted to a paid newsletter before paid newsletters were really a thing mm -hmm. um, and had an initial good launch because of uh, I had fans that would just buy almost anything I put out. Um, but that turned out to be a false positive. Once I actually, once I dug into it, there was no like underlying current of demand. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to create something that was too outside of the main current. So I guess the metaphor I'm using now is a river, right? So you got a, a, a rushing river. And, uh, you know, sometimes there's this idea of like, well, maybe I can like just go off here on this little stream and maybe something will develop. But really most things just kind of fall in line with what's already happening in the, in the river. Mm -hmm. Now, if I launched it today, maybe it would have been better because there's just been a zeitgeist that I couldn't have accounted for that's carved out a category called paid newsletters that mm -hmm. is now kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, it, it might work now. So, but, yeah. So you could say that you're ahead of your time and there are tons of examples of technology that is like this. I mean, like yes. AI was ahead of its time, like in the sixties, if you want to call it AI, right. It's like, yeah. what, what was even the application? How would you even use it? Um, but I do want, I do want to, yeah. I do want to, we have a semantic difference on the word niche, which I also pronounce that way. Yeah. Um, to me, I, and I use it, 
I use it very, very specifically on the show and in my writing to mean the people I serve, the market that I serve. And specialization would be more like a product or an internal thing. So like I could specialize in um, Romulan calligraphy. Yeah. <laughs> but who is it for? That doesn't, that's not a niche in my, in my lexicon. A niche, Romulan calligraphy is not a niche. Mm-hmm. It's a specialization. It's, it's something about me. It's something that I could put on a, re- a resume. A niche is like some segment of, you know, some subsegment of the human population defined by demographics like CEOs of Fortune 500s or psychographics like cynics or, um, or vertical market like dentists, you know, so it could mm-hmm. be, you know, it could be any one of these things. And I, for someone who is starting out and doesn't have a lot of time or money to do marketing, then I strongly advocate going after what I'm defining as a niche, which is this, you know, Seth Godin would call the minimum viable audience, like the smallest possible group of people who you could connect with and help. And if you can figure that out, if you can figure out how to help 10 strangers, not fans, 10 strangers who want to hear more about your Romulan calligraphy Mm -hmm. and they're willing to spend a thousand bucks per print or something, then maybe you can fund that mission. But just going to the whole wide world in a little, you know, essentially, you know, if we use a a fishing metaphor, you're just in this little dinghy with one Mm -hmm. fishing pole and one hook and you're going to go out into the ocean. No, go to a barrel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Except with the barrel, the barrel is already fundamentally limited in terms of upside. And so I think uh, part of my challenge with uh, meaning like, are you talking about fishing in a barrel? Yeah. Yeah. So that there's only so many fish in a barrel. Well, at a, as a starting point, I mean, as a, yeah, yeah. But it, but the metaphor actually fits in my mind because what worries me about niches is I keep seeing people defining them before they've felt the pull of the market. And so maybe later we can get back to how you recognize the pull of a market. But well, that, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Yeah. And a, a, an example of this would be, um, there's a, a British fellow that moves into my town here. We've got a, maybe 60,000, 70,000 people here. And he starts a baked potato takeout place. For who? Uh, for people who like baked potatoes, I guess. Yeah, see, that's... And, okay, go ahead. And and so this is, this is what I'm... Uh, and you can do this lots of ways. You can you can say, well, I'm going to provide. Um, you can arrive in a town and say, I'm going to provide SEO services for restaurant owners. Mm-hmm. the The challenge with defining that upfront is you actually don't know if there's demonstrated demand for that thing. All you've done is you've you've invented a what you think might be a need. You're guessing. I see. Yeah, yeah, I, I total agreement there. I'm not saying throw a dart. I'm saying investigate. I would say investigate the restaurant owners and see what they want. And it's probably not going to yes. be SEO. Yes, and 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 then the the flip side is it, iteratively finding ten people who want your thing is probably a good uh, starting point. It's a it's a it's a, it's one good iteration. My concern is that. I've also seen a lot of people find something where they did find those 10 customers, but there was no demand beyond that. And then they commit themselves to this niche where there's only 10 customers and they really struggle. Uh, And in in some ways, the 10 customers uh, was a false positive and a bad one at that because they're never going to have the life they truly want because they succeeded. They were like, oh, well, if I just find 10 customers that want this, then I'll be home free. But, but it, there has to be upside beyond that. There has mm-hmm. to be enough upside that you can um, get to a reasonable point in the business. And if you lose one of those 10 customers or two of them or three of them, which actually uh, for some reason happens, like I, th- I don't know if there's a statistical or mathematical law that like, you know, losing three people out of 10 really hurts. Um, <laughs> and, and, it, and as you go up the chain, you know, uh, Transistor has thousands of customers. If we lose a handful of customers, it actually doesn't hurt that much. Um, but it definitely hurts when you've only got 10. And if you don't have the benefit Transistor has is that the, the, there's enough momentum there and enough volume 
that um, losing customers, it's actually pr easier for us to replace those customers. But if your right, you total have an base, going. yeah, if your base number is lower, I'm not a mathematician, so I don't know, but if your base number is lower, you know, it, it just becomes increasingly hard to replace sure. those folks. Well, because, um, I mean, if you take it to the logical conclusion, it's one whale client. So if, if you're a yes. freelancer with one whale client, that is an incredibly risky situation for you to be in. You'd want to have, yeah, yeah. I think Blair N says, you don't want to have any one client that's responsible for more than 20% of your revenue in, in yeah. an, agency, at an agency type of business. And I, what's odd to me also is that it's odd to me, like Seth's like minimum viable audience is an odd rubric for me. Because if you go for minimum viable audience, you might find an audience that is 10 people and that kind of maxes out at 15. And Yeah, and he would say that's not good. He, if, if it's starting to spread to other people and it's growing and you're mm. not having to push the rope up the hill, or yes. that's two different metaphors. Yes. If, yeah, yeah, if yeah, for share, sure. No, his, he, to, to flesh, and I agree with what he's saying, so I'll just, I'll just mm -hmm. kind of parrot it here. If you make a PDF and you about how to find the best, um, I don't know, falafel in Paris, right? Mm -hmm. And you give it to 10 people and nobody shares it, make a better PDF. If yes. everybody shares it and then they share it and then they share it, then you're onto something. But if you don't find, because his, I think his experience, and this has been mine, is that people don't even start with one, never mind 10. They just say, I opened yeah. up a potato restaurant in Toronto, want to come? Yes. And everyone's like, no. <laughs> Yes, yes. But just to just to pause there, what do you think he means by make a better PDF? That you, no one cares. Like you, it was a dud. It was, you launched yeah. to crickets. Yeah. But when I hear make a better, I, I, I get stuck on that too, because it's like, you might've made something that's quite good, you know, by what qualities does better have in this case? Well, everybody's got to define their own better. But I, in this case, for me, it would be that it's spreading. So if it's not good enough to share with anyone, then it's not good enough. So you've either yes. got the, you've put it in front of the wrong people or you need to keep working on it or something. But by not spending six months of your life and, and $10,000 or $100,000 to find out that no one actually cares about Romulan calligraphy or mm -hmm. that even if maybe there are people out there, but I can't find them, then it's the same thing. If I can't find them and they are out there or they don't exist, it's functionally, it's the same thing. And yeah. If they don't, if it doesn't get shared to the, the, you know, if there's no, you know, my, my, usually the way I find a barrel is look for a, if, if these people, whatever they are, has a conference that's been around for a number of years, then the barrel is mm -hmm. big enough for you to make a living. Yes. Yeah. So this is, gets back to something we, we alluded to before, which is how do you know that there's underlying demand? Yeah. Let's talk about that. Yeah. And, and I think the, the example you just gave is a great one. If there's, if there's a conference out there that's attracting hundreds or thousands of people um, and they're, they've been going for a long time and people are shelling out thousands of dollars and lots of their time to go to this thing, mm -hmm. uh, you know that there's a big pool of people interested in that thing. One, because they're, they're, the total market there is not just the hundreds of people who attended right. that year, exactly. but it's a much bigger audience that's interested in that and their conversion rate on those folks is lower. Mm -hmm. That's a that's a great rubric for uh, for seeing underlying demand. And uh, I, we go back to the Steve Jobs example. Steve was like, "Man, we're selling a lot of MP3 players, and everybody now seems to have one of these Nokia smartphones or Blackberries, <laughs> yeah. and they all hate it, yeah. but they like it because yeah. they can answer their email." And uh, he he can work backwards and go, "There's like by the time the iPhone comes around." millions of smartphones had already been sold mm -hmm. in the world. It was like there was demand there. And uh, a product person like him goes, huh, I can see what, like, we put a bunch of things together. What's the world demand for digital cameras at the time? Yeah. Um, you know, like digital cameras were insane. Everybody wanted one. So uh, there's, there's lots of examples of momentum in that, in those categories. And yeah. the great thing, the other thing about the iPhone is that it combines a bunch of categories, mm -hmm. even down to flashlights. I'm sure flashlight sales are down as well <laughs> uh, after the iPhone yes, got yes, released, right? Yes, yes. So one thing I see is that that Seth Godin advice of minimum viable audience is misinterpreted, where people are 
looking around themselves going, okay, what's the, the smallest thing I could find to build something on? And um, this can lead you to a lot of dead ends because there's just a lot of businesses where it is actually possible to find 10 people that will pay, but you can't find people beyond that that will pay, uh, which was the problem I had with the paid newsletter. I got a big surge of folks initially um, who would pay this annual fee uh, to get this newsletter. And when I questioned them about why they were joining, you know, because I'm trying to figure out, okay, how do I get more folks like this? How do I find more people like this? So, you know, what brought you here today? And they say, oh, well, I'm just like a fan. I just wanted to see what you're doing. Right. Or, oh, I'm, I'm thinking about starting something similar and right. I want yes, to see what you're that. doing. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay, well, I can't build a business on this. You know, I need to find people who are actively looking for this solution. Yeah. And that's, but yeah. you didn't look, you didn't pick a niche though. You just launched your audience, right? It wasn't like, you didn't say, yes. oh, you know what? Butchers really need a paid newsletter about how to be kosher. Like you didn't do, yeah. you just like, oh, I'm Justin Jackson. I make things. I made this. Do you want it? You didn't make it for them. You didn't really yeah. know who you were making it for. Yeah. Well, the other scenario is still possible, which is, and I'm going to say something that is, um, I'm going to contradict myself a little bit, but with nuance, it, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. You look around your town and you go, what should I do? What should I do? What should I do? Oh, I know some realtors because everybody knows some realtors. Mm -hmm. Why don't I build something for realtors? Yep. And so you call up a realtor and maybe you even do the right thing. You do an interview. Mm -hmm. Hey, can you tell me some problems in your life? And they go, oh, well, I just need like more leads, more exposure. <laughs> right. Oh, what are you doing right now? Well, I've got a website. You look at their website like, oh, this website's trash. I should just build websites for realtors. Mm -hmm. Got a business. Yes, this guy, if you'll sign up, he says, yep, you're in business. The, the, the problem is that uh, it, in your town, you might... Maybe you'll, you'll, you, there's, you know, X number of realtors and you can get mm -hmm. however many, but there's just all sorts of other problems with that. Uh, it's not just, uh, does somebody want it and we'll pay for it? It's like, is there, is the, the size and shape of this category, will it produce a business mm -hmm. that gives them ongoing value so that I don't have to continuously go out and find new people that is big enough that there's enough new leads that I can replace people who churn plus grow the business. Yep. And will this give me as the business owner what I want? Sure. And what's my objective? What's the strategy? What's, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's just very difficult sometimes to start from the place of like minimum viable audience and just looking around you and just like grabbing the first thing you see. Now, now I'm going to, kind of uh, contradict what I just said, which is, mm -hmm. I think the only way to discover good business opportunities is to notice something that you're already involved with. And so there's this dichotomy of, and uh, the overall lesson here, and I'm trying to figure out a non-harsh way to say this, but <laughs> the, the overall lesson is that you, your field of opportunity is really going to depend on your experiences, how many experiences you have, how often you've gotten out of your bubble, um, what kinds of people you know, what kinds of resources you have, what kinds of skills you have, what kind of jobs you've worked. It comes from the, the it, you're going to cultivate good ideas from whatever you've done in the past or whatever you're doing. And so in a sense, it will be <laughs> what you can see uh, I'm just trying to instruct people to be in motion, like go out and get new experiences, meet new people, have new connections, get out of your bubble. Uh, because if you're always thinking small, if you're in a tiny little bubble, like I was in Stony Plain, Alberta, mm -hmm. and all I can see is people starting businesses on Main Street. And so I start a snowboard shop because that's what I can see. Yeah. Okay. That's a fair um, point. Yep. You're, you're going to limit yourself. Um, and in retrospect, I'm almost angry that I didn't know about software businesses earlier mm -hmm. because uh, it, it's just uh, it, in so many ways, it's a better market and specifically a better market for me as someone who's been on computers since 1985. Mm -hmm. So um, what helped me was not just grabbing the first thing 
I could see, which was, you know, I, I know other people who have skateboard and snowboard shops. Mm-hmm. I was in the industry. I've got some experience and the business people I see in my little farm town are, they all start businesses on main street. So that's, what's available to me. That's what I know. Once I got out of my bubble, started working in different industries, um, started traveling to other cities, starting talk, starting to talk to other people um, who were able to show me what they were doing. Uh, that, that's what kind of opened my eyes. And then I was able to, you know, once you kind of expand your bubble, your worldview, mm-hmm. uh, then you have a better chance of observing uh momentum in a category or whatever like Mm. once you're especially like in the tech industry where we are uh fortunate because whether you're an employee or a freelancer or a consultant or you know whatever you are you just have evidence every single day in slack where the boss comes in and goes okay like we need somebody to we need a way of generating banners uh, on the fly and someone goes, well, what about Canva? And then someone else says, well, we could do it programmatically with Banner Bear. You know, there's <laughs> we see people making purchasing decisions yeah. all the time. We see people in motion doing things. Mm-hmm. And I mean, if you're a freelancer or a consultant, you even have a, a, a better worldview in a lot of ways because you're probably a member of 10 Slacks. Yep. And so if seven of your 10 Slacks have talked about Canva in the last month, there's something going on there. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and if you're super into, if your skills and interests align, like you just love making image editors on the web and you think Canva is garbage, then it would probably make sense for you to build a Canva competitor Ooh, because wow. you're okay. seeing this demonstrated <laughs> demand, you know? Maybe. Okay. Well, let's, let's talk about specifics. So Transistor, it is an mm-hmm. existing thing. There are lots of mm-hmm. them. And in fact, I was on, I think John worked with, did John work at Simplecast before? Yeah. He built the original version. Yeah. The one I liked. And then Mm -hmm. somebody bought it and ruined it. Yeah. And, and I was just like, and when I found Transistor, I was like, oh my God, this is exactly what I want. It's like Simplecast used to be. Yes. And how aware, I mean, that's just one anecdote. I can't, I have to imagine that you've heard that more than once, but maybe I'm the, maybe I'm the odd man out. Uh, I mean, there's certainly folks like you, but the vast majority of our business comes from a giant funnel called searching on Google for how do I start a podcast? Okay. So what, but before we get into that, Mm -hmm. how how did you pick, I mean, first of all, podcasting, second of all, hosting, and and there's a million things you could have done in the podcasting space. So I'm imagining the trend, the, the motion you saw in the marketplace was that podcasting is getting bigger. Yes. And so this is where I use this metaphor of surfing. So just imagine you're going out every single day with your surfboard to different surf spots. You've learned to recognize the size and shape of good waves. And you know, when you're on the shoreline, when there's a good wave coming, you know, Mm -hmm. and uh, your chances of swimming out and catching a truly exceptional wave mm-hmm. are if you showed up every day for a long time, you've learned to recognize the size and shape of good waves. You've worked on your fundamentals. You've got a surfboard and everything else. <laughs> and you can you have a better chance of paddling out and catching that wave, uh, especially a better chance than someone who stayed home and played Xbox that day. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I st- started my first podcast in 2012. I was... Um, I was a uh, enthusiastic participant in the ecosystem. I joined Google Plus groups on podcasting. I joined private newsletters. I uh, invited. I created a podcast about podcasting and interviewed some people. I started hanging out with those folks, and so I was in the mix. And as I'm taking my surfboard every day and going out, I start to notice that there's a wave, a bigger wave emerging uh, right around the time Serial, uh, the yeah. Serial podcast came out. Yeah. And there's all sorts of kind of touchstones that that showed me this. I start showing up to the coffee shop and in the lineup, people stop talking about the Netflix shows that they're watching or the apps that they've just downloaded on their phone. Yep. And now they're talking about podcasts. 
Mm-hmm. Like normal people talking about podcasts. Right. What is going on here? Yeah. And then I remember the first time I saw a billboard for a podcast. I know exactly where I was. I know exactly when it was. I was like, okay. Yeah. Like, that went mainstream. You, you start to see. And the big one was a family reunion. And my sister, my youngest sister, who's eight years younger than me, coming up and going, I've been listening to something called podcasts. Have you ever heard about podcasts, Justin? Mm-hmm. I said, I've, Emma, I've been making podcasts since 2012. Like, But it was emerging into the public consciousness. Mm-hmm. And then there was other things too. I noticed the other change was that businesses were starting podcasts. So Basecamp had one, CodePen had one. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the actual, like the uh, initial event that cascaded into Transistor was John talking to me and saying, uh, Cards Against Humanity is starting a podcast and they want to use Simplecast, but I, I think I can build a better tool internally for it. So I'm going to do it. And I said- He was working there? Yeah, he was working there. Mm-hmm. And again, that's that viewpoint of the freelancer, the employee, the consultant who can yeah. notice these things, right? Mm-hmm. And I was just, at the time I was consulting and running MegaMaker. And so I had- you know, Slack conversations. I had, I'm like in, in the mega maker Slack alone, which is this little community I run. I mean, I probably know, I don't know, we had maybe 150 active members at a time, but of active members, there's at least 20 people who had a podcast mm-hmm. and many more wanted to start one. Mm-hmm. So I could feel things happening and it wasn't just evidence of, you know, it's not just the New York times publishing an article about podcasting every week. It's also me seeing people every single day going to Libsyn or someone and paying them. It's me being at a party and I end up talking to somebody about podcasting. He's like, oh man, I've got, I've got five shows on Buzzsprout, but you know, it's costing me a fortune. I wish I could combine it all into one place. It's all of these things. Okay. And, and, and uh, certainly I wouldn't have noticed if I wasn't already surfing those waters. Okay. So, so you saw the wave, you've been, you weren't playing Xbox. You were out there trying to catch a wave, trying to catch a wave, trying to catch a wave, or you're at least swimming around and Mm -hmm. you saw, you're like, oh, there's a big wave coming. I mean, loads of people. I mean, I've been podcasting for even longer than that. And every, every year it's like, this is the year, this is the year, this is the year. It's going to be huge. It's going to be huge. But clearly we're at a point where it is, it's not, it's not, it's still got a lot of room to grow, but, and it's increasing. But so the question is though, of all, of the, it's a whole ecosystem. There's, you could have started a podcasting conference. You could have done podcast production. You don't do that. You could have had people set up oh, shows. Yeah. Like, how did you pick? Where? How'd you pick hosting? Just because John had that, like, in his back pocket. Uh, I mean, the other thing that happened was, I remember when Nathan Barry switched from selling courses to working on ConvertKit. Yeah, I'm ConvertKit's longest running customer. Really. I switched to ConvertKit when I was working for an email newsletter company, and it was it was out of it was out of pity for Nathan. You know, it's like yeah. this this little product's not doing anything, yeah. and oh sure I'll sign up and put my little newsletter on there. And he had a course business that was doing you know three hundred thousand a year or something, mm-hmm. and he decided to switch from that to this little SaaS company that was had peaked at five thousand. A month and was probably down to 3000 or something when he mm-hmm. switched. And I just thought he was making the wrong decision. I was like, why are you doing this? But he saw that the course business model, there are things in it that are very difficult. And um, he wanted to grow to something bigger. Um, and He's like, you know, right now I'm doing whatever, 300,000. If I want to make it to a million, I know lots of people who run those businesses and I don't want to run a business like that. Yeah. So that was one that was one thing that made me think, huh, that's weird because I I was like I was trying to be Nathan Barry. I was yeah. like trying to do that. And <laughs> so I was like, it. what are yeah. you what are you doing? You're switching and I had been in SaaS, you know, and I was like it's difficult. Like it's, you know, it's, it's not easy. Yeah. So that was one thing. The other thing is I met people outside my bubble. Mm -hmm. So I got introduced to Adam Wathen. He found me on the internet, asked if I could help him. Yeah. Yeah. 
he asked if I could help him launch a course. And I was like, oh, sure. He bought Marketing for Developers, this course I'd made. And so I said, sure, I'll help you out. I didn't know this. I didn't know who he was or anything. So I'm helping him with his launch. And I think at that point, my best year total had been like I'd done 150000 in revenue. Adam launches this course for developers, re- refactoring to collections. And he does 150000 in a month or something. <laughs> uh-huh. And he's like, man, this seems good. Is this good? And I was just like, what the? <laughs> and he, I realized then that marketing is like 90%, maybe even more based on the underlying demand. How many people are there in the world out there that want this right now? And there was just, you know, at the time, like I've tried to estimate how many PHP developers are in the world, but there's a lot, millions and millions and millions. They are all economically incentivized to get better at their jobs. Their employers are economically incentivized to help their devs be better. And so there's just a massive market of people who would happily shell out hundreds of dollars for a course to make them better. As opposed to marketing for developers, which was like, how many developers in the world are actually building something? It's just much smaller. How many of them want to learn marketing? Most developers hate marketing. Yeah. How to drink poison for developers. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so the underlying demand was what moved the needle. And then Adam introduced me to Taylor Otwell, who's, yeah. the, who's the creator of Laravel. the Laravel framework. And like Taylor's story is incredible. He, he, he admits he, does not, he has no idea about marketing. His initial uh, motivation to build Laravel was he was going to build an invoicing app, which he did, um, and thought he would make a bunch of money that way, which he didn't. Uh, and the first month that he released uh, Laravel Forge, which is his first SaaS. I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but it's it was something like he jumped to $30,000 a month in a month. Mm-hmm. And I had seen enough growth rates and enough, and it worked for another enough SaaS companies, funded SaaS companies who, you know, it, it took them a year to get to $7,000 a month in recurring revenue. And here was this you know, this guy from uh, Little Rock that's just like, kind of like, okay, I'm just going to launch this thing. And as a solo dev shop, did more than a funded company could. Yeah. Okay. But let's keep that in context of the millions of people who did the exact same thing and got nothing out of it. Sure. Yeah. There's the, 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 the there's layers to this advice, which is why tweets are sometimes, tweet advice is sometimes difficult because it's like, this is one part of the Venn diagram you got to have overlapping. Mm-hmm. There's other things as well. And if the, the, the challenge with business is that you have to have multiple things happen. You have <laughs> to have multiple skills, multiple network. It's true. Yeah. People who have more skills, better network, more resources, oh, yeah. b- better insights. Yeah. Uh, They're starting on know, third base, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. And it, it, in some ways, it's people keep accusing me of uh, focusing on survivor bias, but I'm like, in business, survivor bias is what you want. Because if anybody off the street can start a business, of course, there's going to be more failures than wins. If all it takes to start a business is to put something up on Gumroad, which I'm sure millions of people have. Right. The survivor bias isn't like, yes, you want the advice from the people who succeeded, but they a lot of times don't know what they did that if if anything that even caused it. So because the reason people want to hear people like you talk about this is so they can copy something. And the survivor bias problem is that you're almost certainly copying the wrong thing or something that can't be copied. Yes, I actually don't. I think the um, you don't want to copy somebody who's been successful. The lesson I'm trying to I'm trying to get people to understand Mm -hmm. is that there are some underlying truths um, uh, in capitalism. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And one is if you have something that a lot of people want and you can produce it in sufficient quantities, you will sell as much of that as people. And so, So and, and just to clarify for the audience who've heard me talk about this a lot, it, the important, the key word there was want. Mm-hmm. So if there are a lot of people out there 
you know, I'm not like, so I'm, I'm a big fan of for folks who have like no leads, they have skills, they don't know, they can't, how come I don't get any leads? I need more leads. It's like, mm-hmm. well, what kind of clients do you want? Or like any kind of client. And I'm like, well, that doesn't give us anywhere to start. Mm-hmm. Like that doesn't, you know, a checkbook and a pulse doesn't count. So who wants, yes. who wants what you, and if somebody said, oh, millions and millions of people want this thing. And when, when I, you know, and when I talk about it with the language that I use, they recognize that it's the thing that they want. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Don't start small then. But if, but that never happens. It's so, it's such it, well, maybe you obviously have different life experience than me. You mm-hmm. can point to examples of that happening, but if people are looking for advice, I mean, if, I feel like the strongest uh, advice or the, the clearest, most actionable advice so far is meet lots of people. Get out meet of your lots bubble. Of people, yeah, meet lots of people, but also get good at observing evidence of demand. That's fair. I yeah, think- yeah, yeah. I, I think people can learn that. Here's an, here's just another practical example. Mm-hmm. So I just moved, moved into a new neighborhood and um, I had like a, a bunch of impressions here. Now you've got to be careful just because you keep seeing something doesn't necessarily mean there's a trend, but <laughs> in, in business, if you keep hearing people saying, I want to buy, or I just bought, or I just mm-hmm. paid, yeah, yes. that is a very good sign. Yes, yes, yes. yes. And so I move into a neighborhood and I hear people talking about getting their car detailed. Oh, uh, you know, I heard, you know, this neighbor's grandson is detailing cars and some people are hiring this kid. And then I went to uh, buy a truck and I was like, oh, this truck's really clean. He's like, oh, I just had this, this one guy come and do it. He's mobile. You just call him up and get him to do it. And I just kept hearing like, man, there's a lot of people in this town that want their car detailed. And it's 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 almost like um it's unrealized demand because most people actually will just keep their car undetailed. Like that's but if you came to their door and said, "Hey, do you want your car detailed?" There's actually a fairly good chance in the right neighborhood that they do want their car detailed. Yeah, I would and say yes to that right now. <laughs> yes. So this is this is what I'm talking about observing demand. Yes. Is this and so I I decide I'm going to get the, hire this guy. What do I do? Go on Google. I see that my friend has also hired this guy to detail his car. I call my friend. Hey, what about this guy? He says, yeah. oh, he's awesome. He, yeah. you know, so what are the chances? You know, it's just like evidence on evidence on evidence that there are people in motion that want their car detailed. And there are things like this. Yes. And of course, they're underneath the surface. Of course, mm-hmm. people aren't putting out a lawn sign that says, uh, Car detailers want want it, right? Right, right. So, so there's things like this, and you can learn to observe that demand. And the kid that's running this business, he's in his early twenties, immigrant family, and he's killing it. He's working hard, but he's killing (laughs) it. He gets new clients all the time because there's just enough people that when they see a clean car or they see this fellow cleaning a car. They're like, hey, how can I get that done? Do you have a business card? Yeah, I got a business. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. it's just, it's there. Mm-hmm. So I think people can get good at observing these types of things, um, and it's fairly easy to go on Google and see, like, okay, how many car detailing shops are there? Wow, there's quite a few. How much do they charge? Wow, there's this much. It's like, I'll bet you I could make pretty good money at this uh, if I just started doing it, and. Um, some demand, like some categories are just like that. Yeah. There's just like all this unrealized demand that's just sitting there and all it takes is someone to come and take the lid off of it. Right. And all of a sudden you got a business. Right. So here, so let's loop it back to um, the sort of, you, you started to say something about Transistor where you've got this engine of SEO leads, you know, block, you know, people are searching for this, searching for the other. So people are searching for this thing that they're going to spend money on. So yeah. how do you, um, you know, it's, do you try to be a better mousetrap or what's, do, why not use Simplecast? I mean, I know why not, but, but why, yeah. why Transistor and not Simplecast? Cause they don't even hear Simplecast. They just hear of you. Yeah. I mean, I mean, a, a big part of it was, um, so how to start a podcast is owned by some bloggers slash affiliates that like the first three results is all them. And so the best thing we did was we, created an affiliate program that was quite generous, 25%, something I learned from Nathan Berry. 
And now all of a sudden we are, um, and we had a great product. We demoed them through it. Um, they liked it. A lot of them became customers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, it is great, by the way. I mean, it's great. And and now, now we're in the top five, at least, of people being recommended on those sites. Mm-hmm. And so uh, in, in that case, it's as simple as like in the blunt uh, uh, search of how to start a podcast, the first link people click on leads people to a, a website that set, has Transistor in the top three. And that's been enough in uh, in that sense. You know what I mean? Just with that one channel, um, that's that's a that's a pretty big chunk. At least probably a quarter of our business comes from stuff like that. Do you spend any time trying to differentiate yourself from the competitors, or is it it doesn't even matter? Oh yeah, I think I actually think uh, we compete on product because we we are product people as opposed to a lot of the people in the podcast industry. Like mm-hmm. we've been in tech forever. Mm-hmm. So John's an unbelievable product person. I've got lots of product experience. Uh, we, we know how to build products that scale. We know how to build products that are usable. Mm-hmm. That is an advantage for sure. But how do I know I think, that when I see three, three names listed on a, a website and, and I've got to pick one, like, what do I, yeah. you know, do I come yeah. to, Transistor FM and like, oh, here's the, here's a comparison chart of us and the other guys. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like when there's enough demand, this is why. Well, that's what I'm wondering. Yeah. Is there's so much demand, it doesn't matter. Right. When there's enough demand in one sense, in one slice, it doesn't matter as much. Um, There's certainly other things we're doing. We're leveraging everything. We're leveraging our brand. So now all of a sudden Transistor is a brand that people know. Uh, partly because of SEO, partly because of affiliates, partly because of the audience I built up before mm-hmm. Transistor. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's all these these additive things, these cumulative things that sure. help us with brand, and then customer service and support. Um, we have 24 hour live chat support, and so that also helps. And then there's other things like for a segment of our customers, our story mattered a lot, uh, but I kind of put that under brand. Mm-hmm. I think product, brand, and customer service are the big ones we focus on, and they all play off each other. Mm-hmm. Certainly, like if someone comes to me and goes, okay, well, what's the difference? Like, what's the real difference between you and Simplecast? I can point to a few things, but what Send really tips- <laughs> I'll point well, to a bunch of things. <laughs> well, yeah, in your case, that would, yeah, that would be, but I, I can tip the scales yeah. One of the things that tips the scales is the fact that I'm the co-founder and I'm answering their questions right. on live chat. One of the things that tips the scales is that they'll uh, see one of the hundreds of YouTube videos I've published uh, on how to start a podcast. Mm-hmm. One of the things that'll tip the scales is people in Reddit comments say, saying favorable things about us. Um, you know, there's all of these kind of iterative things. Certainly, if the the actual product and the actual customer experience is no good, I think it's difficult to build a brand off uh, crappy product and crappy sure. customer service. Well, yeah, uh, you kind of need all three pillars. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, that that and again, there was some things we did in our initial splash, and there's some timing issues here also. Like we were we were the first new kid on the block. Mm-hmm. in this current kind of crop of products. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Buzzsprout and Libsyn had been around for a long time. Simplecast had been around for a long time. And all of a sudden there's this fresh face and our competitors, the newer competitors hadn't come yet. So we were mm-hmm. the first in the new wave of new folks. And a lot of people were just looking for a fresh, fresh face. This is why I think the surfing metaphor is apt because- we caught the wave kind of at the right time, right when it was cresting. And, and, and the other thing is there's no guarantees. Like I have no idea <laughs> how long uh, this will last, how big of a wave this is. Mm-hmm. I have some guesses because podcasting has grown 10 to 15% every single year. Um, and it just seems like it's slow and steady. We only have like, I don't know, we have 2.2% of the paid podcasting market. Like there's just opportunity. Uh, 
but I, on the other hand, like it, nobody really knows, right? The, the, that's, that's, that's how markets are. So yeah, I, I'm not sure if that's clear. I, hopefully what's clear is that this is cumulative. As a founder, you're bringing all sorts of things to bear and, um, and every strength and advantage you bring to the table, yeah, that matters. And, and honestly, some things just matter more. <laughs> like enthusiasm. I could, I could pretty much go into a lot of, I could go into a lot of markets. And if I was sufficiently enthusiastic, mm-hmm. um, I already, I have a leg up I because mm-hmm. that that's just, and is that fair? No, none of this is fair. <laughs> capitalism certainly isn't fair. And this is, if we're going to play the game of capitalism, mm-hmm. I think you, you have to realize that, yeah, the, the, the more, the, more good exposure you have, the more people you know, the more resources you have, the more skills you have, the more brand you have. Right. All of that helps. Yeah. And um, you might really like, uh, I don't know, like you might really just click with a channel, a marketing distribution channel, and that might be your channel and you've got lots of skills in it or whatever, but maybe it's just not as good of a channel as other things. And so I'm not sure what you mean. What do you mean? Click with so, the channel. Uh, like, so like, like, oh, I get TikTok. I like, I understand how to TikTok. So let's say like, you're just really good at designing magazine ads. Like you just love magazine ads. You've clipped them out since you were a kid. You're great at designing them mm-hmm. and you, but you want to be in podcasting. It's like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to win because I'm passionate about SEO. And right now SEO matters way more than magazine ads. Mm. And so the your your relative strength or advantage in a market depends on a lot of these factors, and this is what makes it tricky. Is like we could have an individual listening to this come to us and go, "Okay, I'm I'm more introverted than Justin. I don't like I don't really want to be on screen. I don't want to, you know, I'm just really passionate about um, designing billboard ads." but I want to succeed in this, you know, a certain market. It's like, okay, well, I mean, (laughs) this is is just how it is. Like it's, this is why I think um, one place where it does help to look at people who have won, like the survivorship bias element is to say, okay, what are the underlying structures that got them there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that would be good if you could find them. Yeah, and not in a cynical sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, in in that like oh well of course Elon won because he has a huge Twitter following, but in in a more like okay well it makes sense that that Elon can move markets with his tweets mm-hmm. why he's just got a rabid following of course that's going to happen can I learn anything from that well I suppose if I'm the kind of person that likes to build an audience some of that might be helpful because if you have fans on Twitter it's likely that they might buy, right? Um, and then, you know, there's things about that too. But <laughs> I, I think we can, like me seeing the success that Adam Wathen and Taylor Otwell had mm-hmm. definitely had a positive impact on me because it showed me that I needed to expand my worldview and I needed to go after something where there was more momentum. I needed a bigger wave than the one I was riding. and them opening up their pocketbook was kind of like what opened my eyes. Like, whoa, like this is possible. Hmm. Um, and I want a better life. So I'm going to go out and be open to, you know, ideas that, and then John comes along to me. And remember, I'm noticing everything else. Like I'm already noticing that podcasting is getting more popular. I'm already hearing all these businesses starting a podcast. And then John comes to me and goes, man, I'm thinking about building this thing for Transistor. And I like grab the microphone. I'm like, John, (laughs) you got to let me do this with you, man. Like (laughs) I'm ready, you know? And, uh, (laughs) and he, he, you know, that, that planets uh, aligned. I was primed for the opportunity when it came. Mm -hmm. If, if you are committed to riding waves on a pond in Ohio, Mm -hmm. you're just, it's going to, you're going to have a bad time. 
if you are committed to get finding better waves, then you got to go where the waves are. Mm-hmm. Then you got to get in the water and you've got to be there every day. You got to learn the fundamentals. You got to learn to paddle. And eventually it's not a guarantee, but your chances of catching a big wave um, or a bigger wave go way up. Yeah. You, and, can, you can't guarantee that you're going to catch a big wave, but I can guarantee you're not going to catch a big wave in a pond behind your house. Yes. Yeah. And, and maybe I should also clarify here. Uh, when I say big wave, people automatically think I'm talking about something that's massive, but podcasting is, is actually a relatively small market. It's, it's like there's 1.5 million podcasts total, but most of those are free podcasts on anchor. Um, and most of those don't have more than one episode in the paid podcasting market. The leader is Buzzsprout. They've got 80,000. Libsyn's got another 75,000 customers. Like we're talking, we're talking about a small category overall mm-hmm. total total spend. To me, to me that's a barrel like like you are fishing in a barrel <laughs> like 10 isn't a barrel like a thousand yeah. you know like so it, mm-hmm. it's just all like like to me to me the ocean is like billions yes so a couple hundred thousand or maybe even a million is a barrel as far as i'm concerned yeah, 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 yeah. We we gotta align our metaphors. Here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, wrong size barrel. <laughs> the one thing I don't like We're about the barrel, is that, barrel is that there's no there's no feeder system in there. Like it's like uh, oh, that's uh, a good point. Yeah, maybe this is where fishing gets is a bit better because every day I wake up and there's another hundred or so people that are searching mm-hmm. that day how to start a podcast. There's probably actually thousands of people doing this, mm-hmm. and it happens every day. Tomorrow I'll wake up and there'll be more people searching for that. And so there's always um, fresh interest, or at least up until now, there's been fresh interest. This could change. Uh, you know, I'm, Yeah, but, but you'll I'm see sure signs way in advance. Yeah. We'll see signs, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so um, the, you know, if, if you're fishing at a small little stream and only you know, one fish every week comes through there, it's just like your chances of catching fish go exactly. way down. Exactly. But if you're at a rushing river and there's a salmon run, um, sure, it's not the ocean. And sure, you don't have a giant net, but your chances of catching a bunch of fish go way up. <laughs> and um, yeah. I'm, I'm like pretty passionate about how, helping more independents get not just a middling success, but a fairly reasonable success. Like, you know, for John and I... Uh, we're we're well over a million dollars in in annual revenue, and we have mm-hmm. a small little four person company. Mm-hmm. And um, my life is significantly better than when I was really pushing hard doing the other stuff I was doing and earning two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year or whatever. Right. Um, it it it's gotten better. Um, sure. And so the 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 opportunity here is big enough that I actually get rewarded for my effort. And it feels like a lot of independent businesses are just trying to eke out just the bare minimum. Like their margin is just like, they're just barely above the watermark. And the problem with that is that business is so like, you never know what's going to happen. That if you're just getting a middling success, you're actually not getting paid for the risk you're making. Yeah. Um, Like if all you're doing is like, oh, I've replaced my salary from my old job, or I've mostly replaced the salary. That's actually not ideal because you're not getting paid for the risk that you're making. <laughs> right. Like you want to get paid back, and then if you're making multiple bets, mm-hmm. uh, like I did, you you eventually need to get paid back for all those years in the wilderness where you just weren't yeah. doing well, right? Yeah. yeah. And so it, you you eventually want to search for a business that the the water's rushing. There's lots of fish. Again, not commercial fishing level, but just enough for you to go home with a bunch of fish to make up for all those times you were just at a stream and you went for weeks and didn't catch anything, mm-hmm. right? That's how families go hungry. <laughs> yeah, literally and figuratively. <laughs> cool. Well, this has been super fun. Um, I'm, I'm sure you've got uh, SEO to work on. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, this is this is another thing that I I. I I just feel like compelled to say is that I'm working way less. Well, that's and- all about leverage, right? There's and it doesn't need to be assessed. There's a, there's 
a dozen ways you can create leverage in a business. Oh, this is why I love what you do is because I remember hearing your thing about like ditching hourly and it's just like, damn, that's it. Like <laughs> instead of me being tethered to this hourly rate, yeah. which invariably gets reduced down to something, you know, crappy, yeah. um, I, I, I get to set the terms of what I'm doing. And if people want this result or they want this thing, I get to set the price at a level that gives me more life. Right. Yeah. I love that idea. I think it's great. Awesome. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been super fun. I, I feel like this might, I feel like we've spoken before, but I don't know that we ever actually have. I've watched so many we videos an, and we've chatted. Yeah. We did an async video thing where you recorded a video and I recorded a video, uh, <laughs> but this has been great to well, do cool. it in real time. Cool. Awesome. Well, great to have you. Tell people who are into podcasts and are ready to take the plunge and actually launch one of their own instead of just listening or guesting, mm. tell them where to go to find out more about Transistor. Yeah. I mean, podcasting is one of the best decisions I ever made in my life. Like you can link almost all of my, the people I know and the opportunities I've had to starting a podcast in 2012. So I do think more people should do it. And if they want to do it, they should do it at transistor.fm. Uh, yeah, you can just go sign up there. You get a 14-day free trial if you do that. Awesome. Yeah, it is it is absolutely great. Love it. All right, man. Great talking to you. Yeah. See you next time. The, we'll see you in Slack. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. All right, folks, that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark, and I hope you join me again next time on Ditching Hourly. Bye. Hey, Jonathan again. The next time someone asks you for your hourly rate, I want you to stop what you're doing and go over to valuepricingbootcamp.com to sign up for my free value pricing email course. That URL again is valuepricingbootcamp.com. Hope to see you there. Hey, Jonathan again. Do you have questions about how to improve your business? Things like value pricing your work instead of billing for your time or positioning yourself as the go-to person in your space, or maybe productizing your services so you never have to have another awkward sales call or spend hours writing another custom proposal. Book a one-on-one -on -one coaching call with me and get answers to these questions and others in the time it takes you to get ready for work in the morning. Best of all, you're covered by my 100% satisfaction guarantee. If at the end of the call you don't feel like it was worth it, just say the word and I'll refund your purchase in full. To book your one-on-one -on -one coaching call, go to jonathanstark.com slash call, C-A-L-L. -L. That URL again is jonathanstark.com slash call. Hope to see you there.